hear Dr. Carrie Grant, uh, who is someone that you probably know from television or from the music industry. So she's a very well-known name in the UK and, and also internationally. But also it happens to be the case that Carrie is an autism champion and advocate and has done an enormous amount of work for the autism community. And it's a real honour to have her here on the podcast, talking through some of her experiences, some of her challenges, some of the things that she's most proud that she's achieved and where things need to go moving forwards. So that's a little bit of context. So thanks again for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we've also got with us um, Emma Lazenby. Hello. Uh, So it's the three of us today. Thanks for joining us. Okay who's just starting out. Could, could you give us a little potted story of your family and yeah. how, you, how you've come into the world of additional needs of children? Yeah, I think it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it, when you enter the world of additional needs because obviously it, it normally starts somewhere around when they start school. That, mm-hmm. that's, I mean, you might have get little pointers beforehand, but certainly if it's your first child, you probably won't even know there's a lot of difference because it's your only experience of that child. So, uh, And then when you do it, suddenly you're approached by someone called a Senko and they say to you, oh, hello, this is Grant. I'm the Senko. We're going to have to talk about ASD with you because you may need to go and see CAMS. <laughs> and and if, if you're really unlucky, you might have to apply for an EHCP. And you sort of look at them like, sorry, is this a whole other language that and I've never heard? I know. You know that yeah, I'm meant to know what all these acronyms mean. Yeah. Um, so I entered the world of acronym uh, <laughs> probably some, probably 15 years ago with my first daughter, Olivia, who is now 23. There was some sort of... Uh, I was always the parent that was getting called at the end of the day, you know, and you don't want to be that parent. Mm-hmm. And, and you're standing outside and here comes the teacher with all the kids and she's looking above their heads and she's, she's, she's looking to, to see where you are. And I kind of used to duck down thinking, it's going to be me again. <laughs> I even got to the point of going, don't pick me, don't pick me, pick somebody else. You know, Mrs. Grant, can I have a word? And with Olivia, it was always about her attention or lack of attention. Uh, a very compliant child with serious attention deficit. With Olivia, she didn't get any diagnosis at all, but there were always questions about what's there. And also, I think back in the day, I mean, she's 23 now, but when she was seven and eight, they just kept saying, you know, she won't do as she's told. She won't concentrate. Why is she not listening? Why is she not listening to me? That's And so that, that, that was seen as non-compliance because she was unable to listen and concentrate. And that became a real problem in secondary school. She was diagnosed with dyspraxia at the age of 11. But we began to realise actually there, there was a little bit more than just a kind of clumsiness or a disc, you know, not, not being coordinated. And uh, so we had her tested for ADHD at the age of 18. She was diagnosed straight away. Again, the girls with ADHD present in similar ways to the, the girls with, with autism is that it looks different. It's a different profile. Mm-hmm. So this uh, particular doctor said 100% she's definitely ADHD so that has really helped her to have a diagnosis and I, I, I think for her getting a diagnosis at 18 she would tell you this was really awful that she didn't have a diagnosis before and there begins that the first thing I guess that comes up is why do we get our children diagnosed 
why are we over-labeling our children? That's often what we're told as parents, you know. But actually, speak to anyone that gets a late diagnosis. They will say to you, they will never thank you for a late diagnosis. They will always say, I wish I had got diagnosed earlier. And for me, I think there's only ever a problem with a label if you've got a problem with the label. See, I don't have a problem with the label. And then along came Talia seven years later. Talia would line up her toys. She had intense special interests. She also didn't like her foods touching and there was a lot of sensory stuff. She had all these sort of slight what I would call quirks, really. But she was very sociable, chatted away, ten to the dozen. She made eye contact, uh, went to school, and it was only when she went to school that things really started to kick off. She would... I guess be one of those girls you describe as being under the radar. So she hit all the academic targets, but there were always complex relationships. All of her relationships at school were so complex. There were always problems and she'd come out of school and I I used to just hate asking her, how was it? That was like turning a button on for a meltdown, really. How did it go today? And she would say, you know, no one listens to me. The teacher doesn't understand. She was terrified of history. So she was terrified of black and white photographs. There were certain things that made it really hard to go into the class that they didn't think that she had any issues. Uh, And then how many years later? So another five years later, Imogen was born in 2006. Imogen is now 12. And Imogen presented in a slightly different way. So Imogen... We thought she was deaf to begin with because she didn't turn her head when we called her. She didn't really make eye contact particularly. She would speak about... She would say everything in very minimal words. And she would use third person. So by the time she was a year and a half, you'd say, she want drink. She would just, if she could just point, she would just point. It's like, why bother using language when I can just get what I want by pointing? Um, But then... We went on holiday, actually, and we were in an airport where there was some white noise. And that's the first time. And she really completely melted down in the middle of uh, Atlanta Airport. And we thought, gosh, nobody else is melting down here, only her. And it was a really high-pitched noise, and it wasn't nice. But from that moment onwards, it was like a button had been pushed. So then it was, if she was sitting near a kettle that was boiling, she would run away. If she was sitting by the fridge, she would put her hands over her ears. Um, and things like going into public toilets if people put the hand dryers on all those kind of all those kinds of things she would run away and you'd think oh gosh she's she's midway and she's run out the toilet and you know it was just really hard taking her out so I went to see my health visitor and she was an amazing woman she was about to retire and she you know I love those people that have just been in it their whole life yeah you just want one of those don't you and she yeah she was like can I just ask you how you know what do you think about autism and I said I don't know anything about autism in fact I probably knew a lot about autism because I think I grew up around it but I didn't realize that I knew a lot about it and so we had Imogen tested and I thought you know what whilst we're having Imogen tested why don't we have Talia tested too so in 2009 in August um, when Imogen was three and Talia was seven they were both diagnosed on the same day as autistic and, um, you know, and I know for many people, they will think, oh, my gosh, how do you handle that? Um, but actually, I think when when you work in the arts like I do, we treasure people who are autistic. I work when I look back now, I can see I've worked. And actually, these are probably the people that most interest me. 
are those who are really quirky and different and individual. Those are the singers. I'm a vocal coach. So when you're working with a singer who is, you know, and people with management would call me, they'd go, look, we've been through every vocal coach in the land. No one wants to work with them. They're a total nightmare. Could you have a go? And then they'd come out of their first lesson. The management would say, what did you just do? And I'd, I'd think, I don't know. I didn't, don't think I did anything any different. I don't think I was, I just was feeling that person, I suppose, just really feeling their vibe. And, um, so I work very well with autistic people. So for us, yeah, our kids are autistic, but part of me wants to say, well done you, you know, congratulations. There is a part of me that wants to say that. There is obviously another part when you look at the challenges where I want to go, oh my gosh, this is so hard. But it's a combination of things and, and you've got to take the rough with the smooth, I guess. Um, and then we, after that, we chose to adopt in, in 2011 and our son came to us at the age of two and he's diagnosed with ADHD so I have three children with complex needs or with full statements uh, uh, you know EHCPs complex uh, situations so yeah lots of lots of needs we my husband always says we put the funk into dysfunctional um, we are we're a very dysfunctional family but it works for us we're very we're a very happy family um, we're, we're a unit and, and we get each other and it, and my, my big challenge, I guess, now is just I want to prepare my children for the world, which is a harsh place to be. But equally, and this is why the reason why I go out and do so much is I, I want to prepare the world for my children. Mm-hmm. If I can do something to change the world a bit, then that might help them. Um, yeah, so that's my kids. That's a very long answer, isn't it? Okay, that's it. The podcast is over. <laughs> she took no, half an hour just describing her children. It's just, you know, what a team. I think that that's the whole part of it. It's when you feel like a team and you all understand each other, but it, it, it's that fear that comes when you have to send them off to school or into the big wide world and just think who is going to be their voice and understand them kind of for me. You know, You're so right. You want people to like your children, don't you? You're oh, so desperate. Yeah. Just, or to see they're good, well, actually. Just see, yeah, just to see what they're capable of and just to see how beautiful they are. But then we, were, we talk about this a lot, don't we? It's that balance of them understanding that they do find the world a little bit terrifying sometimes. So yeah, they have these beautiful minds that should be celebrated, but they also really need to you know, to be understood and to have that little bit of extra care. I think you're right. And I think that one of the things that you do even before you work out school is actually work out your own family. You know, I think we had to do that. Um, David and I were very much on the same page in terms of, wow, these children are amazing. But I think we were not on the same page uh, for some time on how do we manage the behaviours um, because we both come from very traditional families who, you know, we're not putting up with any rubbish. You know, we want our children sitting in a restaurant being quiet and everyone looking at us and thinking, See, what a great family, you know. And, and of course, that's not going to happen to us ever. Um, and, and now I don't really care about that. But I, we both did for some time. And I think I moved towards a much more therapeutic form of parenting much quicker than David did. David was like, we can't put up with this behaviour. You know, they, they need to not have their iPad for a week or, you know, that kind of very uh, punitive kind of way of parenting and and that just doesn't work with these children and that's just you and your marriage or partner or whoever you're parenting if you if you're lucky enough to co-parent co-parenting in that way um I sometimes think actually it's easy to not co-parent because at least it's only one person making the decisions but beyond that it's also about the parents the in-laws the your own siblings all of those people you've got to try and get on side and in so many families we find that 
that just takes years. Mm. You've got all this judgment. You enter the world of being judged constantly. So trying to make sure all those really connected relationships work and, and, and people get it. And then, of course, school is the next big thing, really. But whichever way you look, you've got challenges. You know, and I think that's what's difficult is that's a lot of people to convince. There's a lot of people to convert. I just wanted to uh, pick up on a few things that you said that were really interesting. But let's let maybe think about, let's talk about what you said about David and his kind of response to it in terms of managing it, being a little different, yeah. a bit more punitive, you said. Yeah. Like, what, why, why do you think that is? Do you think it's something to do with his kind of cultural heritage? Do yeah, you think it could something be. to do with his cultural background? Or what, I what think is it, it could what, be. What you put the difference to? I think that for for David, he comes from a Jamaican background, mm. and generally speaking, um, his generation are are definitely more strict. But having said that, my my parent was really my mum was really strict. I grew up with my mum, and she was really strict. So David and I were kind of on the same page. It's only when I looked, I was just quicker to go this ain't working. Whereas David was like, no, keep going, keep going. We have to keep going with the way that we parent. And I began to sort of reach out to, I, I, I'm so porous, I'd be talking to any parent and I'd, I'd go, oh, I like what she just said, oh, I like what he just said. I'm just, I'm going to incorporate that in my parenting. And so I, because I'm a little bit more absorbent than David, I, he's, he's perhaps a little bit more, or was a little bit more rigid. It took him a long while to understand. I mean, some of the things we do, like for instance, we do a, a form of parenting called nonviolent resistance, which has given me probably the most tools and strategies that have completely transformed our family. But one of the things would be that you don't give any punishments or rewards. Ooh, yeah, immediately. You know, and, and, and for for other parents that have got neurotypical children are going to go what what how's that child getting away with that so for instance my son might go out the room shouting and slam the door in front of people now I'm going to get judged for that by family and friends who are going to think how did she just let that child shout and walk out the door now for David and I we are working on one behavior at a time so we have a top box a middle box and a bottom box bottom boxes of stuff you're just going to forget it for the moment you're going to sweat the small stuff the middle box is the stuff that yeah that's heading towards the top that will be on the agenda but the top box is one behavior and that one behavior might be that my son is capable of punching you in the face and knocking you out so actually that's my aim and that's all I'm working on because my son, because of adoption, is, has so much shame, I can't work on any more than one behaviour at a time. So that takes the pressure off us having to excuse or try and manage a dozen behaviours. We're looking at one thing and that becomes the big thing we're going to work on. If my son had hit my, my daughter and then walked out, they would have seen a very different response. But for us, I'm sweating that stuff for the moment. I'll get on it, don't you worry, but it won't be for this month. This month we're working on hitting. So my son has gone from, hit at home this is, hitting to the point of knocking people out, to not hitting, to not shouting, to not slamming doors. Occasionally we'll get a bit of stomping up the stairs. Um, but, you know, all of that has taken two years. It's amazing though. But That's if people amazing. had come in after six months and seen a bit of shouting, they would have thought these parents are out of control. 
hate that. But don't. How can you let them? How can you let them do this? So, but why? Why are you telling me to parent in a neurotypical way? I need to be a genius to. You know, you've got to be a genius parent. You've got to work on your own brain and work. How on earth do I work with these children? You've got to find strategies. You've got to find new ways. So the thing of no rewards and no and, and actually sometimes for autistic children actually I have to say rewards star charts they kind of sometimes really like that stuff but I do like the idea for instance that any of my children could go to bed this evening and when they get to their pillow there'll be something on there that's a little gift might be a little bit of lego or you know little t-shirt and they'll come to me and they'll say it's a t-shirt on my pillow and I go yeah what's it there for it's a gift why have I got a t-shirt what did I do any child my all my children what did I do nothing you did nothing why have I got it then you've got it because I love you you know we all say we want to teach unconditional love and yet the first thing we do as parents is stick rewards and punishments in so for me I've just removed those things and we're working on you are given this because you are loved because for no other reason. No, it's unconditional. That's yeah, very beautiful. I think we don't, we don't need to... They don't have to, earn, they have to work to earn a reward, right? They, no. They, they I think there are things they, they can just... earn, but they're not, yeah, yeah. not, not attached right. to behaviours. So, right. you know, yeah, if you yeah. want to go, I want to teach my child to leave his dirty washing outside his bedroom door each day, that's, that might be one of the things you want to do. That's great, but that's not a behavioural thing. Then right. you're going to give them... You did that for a whole week. Do you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to give you you know whatever blah 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 but it's just a beautiful way of expressing your love isn't it I mean yeah right? unconditional it's something, it's something love concrete as well like, that they can, yeah. they and can with, feel and get and anyone that's got an autistic child and has got there are other siblings in the family will talk about the impact on the siblings it's a massive thing so for us in our family we get them to leave gifts for each other as well so right. it's like I know that you hate your sister right now but what I, I'm asking you to do would you be prepared to give them a gift today you know, and then you have to work that out. Do I like them enough to do that? Well, actually, I'd love to leave a gift because that's a nice thing to do. I know that how that makes me feel. And so that builds their relationships with one. I mean, there's lots of other things. It's not just about gifts. But, um, you know, those kinds of actions are, for me, they're little strategies that make all the difference. Yeah, I know that my son, when he's, you know, when he's happy and loves, he knows he's really, really loved. Yeah. You know, you're going to get the best out of them. I think one of the things that autism parents often feel is that, and I think this is, again, probably one of the areas of grief, if there is a grief, would be that my love isn't enough. That probably is one of the biggest heartbreaking things for me is that I can love this child. I can't stop them killing themselves I can't I have no power I am out of control Mm -hmm. so if there are mental health issues which there often are with autistic children particularly as they get towards their teens there's things you can't control and then you enter a whole new world really and I think that it's managing yourself and your own reactions and responses during those very very difficult periods if if unfortunately those periods happen would you agree that one of the things that we can't control and that has a great amount of damage on mental health are the judgments that people make to and the negative interactions that yeah. autistic people experience you know in terms of the stigma I and the know attitudes. That, oh my and gosh, also the attitudes no. the judgments that parents and families feel and then that perhaps trickles down I just I'm just struck by the power of, of the negative judgments you know the the stigma that that's out there and how impactful that can be and how also how we all 
you know, want to feel loved by others and we, we all sort of crave that positive reinforcement and that acceptance by others. And mm. what is that about? Do we, do we really need that? I mean, why are we always looking for well, other people's um, validation that what you're doing is right? You if know, anything, you're right. You're that's absolutely right. It is yeah. problematic. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think just well, any child, adults, I mean, it's just built into our, it's just human nature. Everybody needs and wants to feel loved and accepted, actually. And I think it's when maybe children... My son's a lot younger than your children, Carrie, so you, you've got the, the problems with maybe them feeling that they haven't been accepted or that um, mm. they can't, that, um, I don't know, peers are not embracing their differences. But um, So it just must be a million times, because yeah. everybody wants to be accepted for who they are, I, I think. But we're so vulnerable to the negative stuff, aren't we? I mean, that's such yeah. a shame. If, if, we're, if, we're, if we're feeling, if we feel or actually concretely experience negative judgment or discrimination it totally ruins us you know and that can lead okay to so then health, okay absolutely 100 yeah. percent, chris and then if you think about okay two things first of all i was reading in fact it was on social media today a woman made her child a badge because they were giving out badges for 100 percent attendance and her child has got a disability that means they can't always be at school so this child will never get the badge so what you're telling that child is you don't you you can't reach the goal you can't match it. So she made an own badge saying something like you know even if I don't make a hundred percent attendance I'm still worth it you know that kind of thing. And then another person chipped in on social media and said, in my child's school, if you get a hundred percent attendance you get perks so you get to go to the front of the dinner queue. So therefore we're setting up this little realm of those things. That and my question is everything that happens to our children outside of our and including in the home but if we think about outside the home and particularly school what message does this give to my child Mm -hmm. like my 12 year old who is autistic has no learning disability and there isn't a school for her within two hours of where we live so she hasn't gone to school for a year the impact on the family is huge so but what more than anything what impact does that what message does that tell her what is that telling her it's saying you don't fit. There's no one. You can't have a birthday party this year because you've got no school friends because you've got no school. Mm-hmm. So, and trying to actually hold that child through this period and keep reinforcing their sense of worth costs us as parents. It's hard as parents to do that. But in terms of judging us as parents, which is where you started, Chris, I physically, literally wrote down and made myself a contract and it was a contract with myself and I said I Carrie Grant agree that I am a a good parent b and I've got all these things on my contract these are the people whose opinions I will listen to then I've listed my five closest people and then I've signed it and I will a hundred percent not be swayed and I will not move from my mindset that is probably the you know the the biggest thing for me is David and I are great parents and maybe that sounds boastful but you know what I would rather think like that than be doubting myself the whole time and there's so much reason to doubt like you say because of all the judgment I can't go there because if I'm not if I don't keep up my own mental health my kids are then going to literally fall apart so I have got to keep that mindset I'm a good parent you know, no matter what anyone tells you, no matter what Cam say to you, no matter what anyone says, you're a good parent. And an autism parent, I've never met an autism parent 
that if you want to make it a competition, they far outweigh any they neurotypical. They are yeah. amazing. Yeah. And you're, you know, you're saying that and you've got a five-year-old. You know, I probably, I had to emerge. I had to evolve into that. But, you know, you're saying that with a five-year-old. That's amazing. Oh, I, Don't yeah. change on that. But what, what advice would you give to people like me that are quite new to the whole journey every time and are still a little bit kind of wobbly in there? You know what, I would love the, a contract. I think I, I'm getting there, but um, I think as we were talking about with, with your, maybe your husband's different upbringing and, you know, I'm from up north, my husband's from, that's a very, very different um, family. So everyone's still trying to meet in the middle somehow yeah. and not jump to those conclusions of like, oh, don't let him get away with that. Maybe yeah. that is something you can control. Um, what? Do you, how did you get to where you are now? How did you get that mindset, would uh, you say? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I'm wondering that myself because it's hard to do what you've what you've done, Carrie, I think, you know, to sort of write out that kind of contract as a concrete reminder that more than anything it's about loving yourself than it yeah. is about being vulnerable uh, to the judgments of negative people. Do you know what I mean? Not relying yeah. on on those judgments. And I, I, I think that's where we all... I've, I've thought about this for a long time, and I think that's where we all need to be. We need to be much more self-compassionate, much more self-accepting, and, you know, not sit self, sort of st- self-stigmatise um, ourselves. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Once we once we sort of believe those judgments and we're vulnerable to it, that ruins our Oh, it literally, yeah. You know, the self-stigma happens, and we think of ourselves less of less worth and have lower self-esteem and then that triples into everything so you know I'm, I'm sort of campaigning for you know self-acceptance and the rejection of public stigma and the prevention of self-stigma and I think you've got something concrete you've done I mean without any perhaps you know you haven't got a magic wand have you and you figured it out you yeah, know you figured it out that actually I need a, I need to sort of tell myself that I know I, I'm a I'm a good parent. I I love myself. Yeah. And you know it doesn't matter what other people say. That goes those words you know, though. Is, those words there? are against British culture. Mm-hmm. We don't say this stuff. This is true. That's half the issue. Is we don't say I know I'm a good parent right, and I love right. myself. It's like it's who do you think you are? are? We like, we'd, yeah. we'd be especially pushed towards shame. Women, especially women. men. Men too, but I do think women are very good. Just think. I, I think we need to talk more, and and I know that's always the answer, but. We do. I think when, when someone comes with a judgment, I try not to respond to it. I try to say, let me just check with you what you're saying to me. Can I just check with you? And I repeat back exactly what they've said. Nine times out of ten, people will go, oh, no, I didn't really mean it like that. I meant it like this. Mm. And then you go, so you meant it like this. Let me just repeat back that then. So is this what you're saying? I sl- and I, for me, slowing down the conversation you've got to slow down the communication right, it all goes too fast and ADHD oh my gosh my daughter with ADHD is just in an argument she just can't cope at all because it's all going at speed she's got a hundred thoughts all going on which one do I pick yeah. to say you know so let's just roll it back a bit what are you saying here let me just check and then if someone says you know I think the way that your parenting is not helpful to your child okay let me just tell you how that the impact on me can I now just share with you how that makes me feel that makes me feel like really negative about myself and actually in order to be a good parent I can't really entertain those thoughts so I'm wondering from your point of view whether if you do think that I'm not a good parent there's two things you can do that would really help me first of all you could either say nothing 
or you could encourage me in the areas that I am good at because that would really be proactive. So if you if you don't mind, would you would you mind doing that? They'll probably find it really patronising, but quite frankly, they're being patronising to you. So I think we do have the right to speak. And I think as an autism parent, I've learned that probably more than anything. Like, if you aren't a warrior to begin with, you are going to become a warrior. You will become mama bear and papa bear. You are going to, it's going to happen because you're going to fight for every last damn thing. There was a lot of, we were talking about this earlier when we Christ, that just, yeah, there's a lot of um, parents taking time out of work, you know, reluctantly sometimes, yeah. just so they have the time and the energy for the fight because... I had no idea how much fight you have to have in you to get the right support for your child, um, to get that inner strength as well, to stand up for your child, help them to love themselves when you don't fully understand how they're, especially with a first child. Um, so yeah, I mean, that, it seems to be a bit of a, a problem that the parents that don't have the fight, they're probably, their children are probably missing out on, I don't know, some level of support at school. I know that the EHCP process, for example, is a battle. It, it's huge. I've just got to the end of it. It's taken a very long time, but I do feel for the parents that are. You yeah. Know, what about if you don't? Yeah. And also, what, what if English is your second language or things said, like that? Yeah, oh, oh my gosh. The, I mean, the forms I are ridiculous. For yeah. So I can write. I knew what to say, and um, I was really grateful of that. But even I found them really difficult, yeah. exhausting. They're emotionally exhausting because you're having to rip your child mm. apart. Really, mm. it's awful. It's awful. But you know what? That does also raise another issue, which is primarily it's the women that end up giving up work if they were working before. If it, I'm talking about in a male-female relationship. Obviously, there's lots of different types of families. But in, in that respect, the woman will become the full-time carer. Husband mm-hmm. goes out to work. Partner goes out to work. Thinks, I'll just stay an extra hour at the office because going home is a flipping nightmare. By the time I get home, she's tearing her hair. My wife's tearing her hair out. Kids are all over the place because they're tired. And of course, dad gets in and thinks, what is going on here? And, 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 and what can happen, we've seen this, we run a parent support group in a home, is that sometimes the, 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 the partner that's working becomes more and more disengaged. And that is a real threat to our marriages, to mm-hmm. our partnerships, to our relationships, whatever the combination they are. It can really impact them. And, and I think that's a very real issue that again we need to talk about this stuff we need to talk about the impact on marriage it's It's all relationships it's hard because this is the thing and it's nothing to do with you know we like to think of ourselves as you know feminists and you know i know a lot of autism and mainly mums i have to admit who have who have given up their beloved careers just just because that's kind of still how it's got to work it's 2018 but the guys generally earn more money we're Um, we're very fortunate in the in the sense that david and i job share so I'm here now and David is at home now and then if he's working I'm I'm at home so but that's we're very fortunate because we're self-employed that we're able to job share in that way but you know most people don't have that kind of flexibility Um, and so that that's another big wedge that goes in there I think for, for for relationships it's very very difficult it's at the core of everything then with your relationship I think and honestly hats off to single parents of autistic children because I just they're, they're yeah. amazing the biggest heroes you could ever yeah, have agreed because really. I, I struggle enough with a supportive husband but who does work long hours and, and there's no there's no answer really but I think it's just another thing about other people um, outside of the kind of autism circle just understanding just how wide the impact is, you know, on, on the parents' relationships and the parents' yeah. mental health. 
yeah. and siblings. We never get really get to talk picture. about our mental health, do we? It's no. all about our children, and that's you know that's not how life's meant to be. We are meant to be taking care of ourselves. But I think getting getting back to what Chris, what you were saying about stigma, mm-hmm. I think that it's one thing to um, put up with someone who is different to ourselves. Putting up with someone is one thing. Accepting them is a whole other level. Because tolerating and accepting are very different mm. things. So I think sometimes we are tolerated, our children are tolerated. Occasionally there, there's a, a situation where they're accepted and that's lovely when they are. But I think we should be pushing beyond that to the point where our children are positively celebrated. We should be moving towards when someone says oh my child's autistic that people go oh wow that's amazing and people understand it and and think that that's a an amazing way to be Mm. you know it's about neurodiversity it just means a different it's not the predominant type of brain Mm -hmm. how do we know that it's not going to be the most predominant type of brain we don't know in you know with technology going the way is in another 30 40 years the autism people might be the neurotypicals and the the ones that are now neurotypical won't be They'll be the, a dying breed. So, you know, it's, it's an interesting thing, but to remove stigmatising, and, and, and stigmatising happens in so many ways that are not always overt. Those things can be very subtle, like I was saying about, you know, the attendance. Let's give 100% badges to all those people that attend every day. You know, people think, well, that's not a big deal, is it? Actually, for those kids, it really is. Mm, absolutely. If you really think about that, what a terrible, terrible thing. But there are hundreds of examples like that, aren't there? You know, in school. Oh. I've that, I've just learned about this cloud system at school, actually. I thought I had no idea this existed. So if, you are, if you're not paying attention, or you're not listening, or you're being too loud, you're put on the cloud, which is... Yeah, your picture is... See, see, I would love to have my head in the clouds. That, to me, is a huge advantage. If you want to be an artist, that's where you've got to pretty much live. But when they're they're old enough to turn it around... Yeah, they can't turn it around. Not when they're tiny. Yeah, there's a lot that everyone's up against, I think. And a lot of it, like you were saying, with maybe David's slightly different family and and cultural background, it all starts with, with that, doesn't it? You know, your first big battle... With stigma really is 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 what's you know right on your doorstep and um sometimes it doesn't even come from a terrible place it's just that misunderstanding really but i don't it? want my children to survive school which is unfortunately what they've had to do and and i will say that's not the same with all autistic kids and sen kids and all of that there's plenty of schools that are really amazing and doing tremendous work my experience of my children's schooling uh, generally, I would say, has been so appalling. And it, and that's not just one school, it's across a number of schools now. Um, they don't get it. They actually don't get it. And uh, that that's really difficult. All my children have had to survive school. And that it should never be that way. School should be... I loved school. I absolutely too, loved yes. it. I had all kinds of problems going on at home when I was growing up. But I absolutely loved you school. You escape. Yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant place to be. Um, whereas for our children, sadly, it hasn't been. And, and I don't want, I hate the fact that my 23 year old is having, still having to have counselling now about trying to get through stuff that happened 10 years ago at school. It's just not right. Yeah. Think anything's changed since then? No, I think it's there. worse. Think but it's you know what? You know what the government would have us do is to destroy one another, is to have us sit here and slag off teachers. And that's not, I'm not up for that either. 
I think that it's the policy makers that really need to be brought to question. It's when you say to a school, your targets have to hit here. You have to, you make it such a competitive world, you know, which is why you've got 100% attendance badges. You make it so competitive that children, our children can't enter the game. They can't be in there. So a school, you know, it, it would be, used to be, oh, there's a local school down the road. They're amazing for SEN. The Senko's lovely. Send your kids there. So, you know, all of us SEN, all of us SEN parents would say, yeah, sending our kids to that school they love. They don't want our kids. We're bringing their figures down. We're making their, them fall down the league table. When you've got academies and competition and budget attached to policy and all of that, of course they don't want our kids. Our kids don't do them any favours. So until we start measuring kids in different ways other than just exams, until we look at their emotional well-being and say, actually, this school managed to take this child whose parent died, let's say, when they were 14. These, this school held that child through that difficult time. They really got them through those two years. Let's really give that school some kind of Ofsted award rather than saying, actually, that kid, well, they, they fell from an A, A stars to Bs. So now, or what are they now, nine down to seven or something. You know, we're punishing schools for doing the right thing. And then all that happens is the parents and the schools all hate each other. The parents are too moody. The parents are too demanding. The parents are too warrior spirited. You know, we're then criticised. It's ridiculous. Let's stop destroying each other. Let's band together, cause some groundswell and get the policy makers to make the changes. That's what we need in this country is for policy to change. The whole, the whole culture is a mess, isn't it? The it's whole, a total whole, mess. The whole, the whole under, business is like a really harsh mm. business, it's a business. with innocent children in it. It just seems the wrong start in life, doesn't it, for them? Anything that's to do with numbers and percentages and money yeah and all that war said is why have we got so many children with mental health problems these days why is that happening and people have these discussions not oh it's because of ipads it's because they're always online no it isn't i don't really don't believe that's true not with younger kids like lots of kids don't even get ipads till they're about 10 and we're talking about seven and eight year olds but what they are getting is you need to get your sats results and if you don't attend school or if you get if you don't get the right result well let's all give you tutors people where i live in a kind of fairly middle class area in north london um how many kids have got tutors they're all sending them to tutors every night these kids are burnt out by the time they're nine years old it's ridiculous and terrifying for parents as well because that, that's the other financial drain it's it's well, either that or they become work. career parents career yeah. parents for the child it's like it's ridiculous just can we please swim against the tide and just look at opening the back door and telling your kids to climb a tree you know, just live life. Like, I don't know, I just feel like I had a really hard childhood, but it felt a lot freer than what my kids experienced. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think, I think the, the, it's the, it's the cultural, it's, it's our culture that is the problem. Do you know what I mean? It's the culture of competitiveness, of wanting to be the so-called best in whatever best means. You know, it's that thing about what we said before about avoiding negative judgment you know we're obsessed with it and it comes at all different levels and shapes you know it's about being judged as better or the best do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. and it starts it can start at a very that kind of whole cultural those cultural values that we have can sort of become ingrained upon us at a very young age at school so the idea that when we're at school that we're rewarded for having the best attendance or the best grades or whatever or you're gifted and talented because you're good at english maths and science but you happen to be like talia my 17 year old when she was 11 she was the world champion taekwondo she's got a gold medal at the world championships she came home she said well i get gifted and talented now i said 
sorry, honey, no, you won't, because it's not in English, maths, or science. Right, right, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's, it's what we value. Yeah. Yeah, it's what we value. Yeah. It's all in the arts, she's really gifted and talented. I just think we should sort of, you know, like what you do, Kerry, with your own family, is that we should sort of show our love for the children in the schools and be compassionate. You know, the, teach, the sort of policy, the culture needs to be about being more comp- compassionate and kind to our children and, and doing nice things for them regardless of their grades or what they what they yeah. do or don't do. Yeah. Because that's very, I mean, you know, these policies can have, you know, a very long-term social repercussions. Because if, if that's the, the culture that these policies want, you know, in terms of, affecting that kind of competitive climate and culture through the socialization of rewarding kids with better grades or better attendance or whatever yeah. it is then they grow up thinking you know oh i need to you know that's 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 ingrained upon them isn't it and that and then they then their their whole life I think yeah that message is, is i'm not good enough whole, our whole life is about uh, being a, acutely aware of how we're being judged yes it's all about that judgment again isn't it yeah. it's about or am I doing better than him or her? Or you know, it shouldn't be about better or worse. No, you're right. It should just be about you know enjoying life. And I just think going back to what we said earlier about if if you're vulnerable to the negative judgments, you can feel shame for yourself. Do you know what I mean? And then that ruins your mental health. So I just think that if we can talk more, I do think it comes down to talking and discussion and discourse that, well, that can affect. I think you're right. And change. I think it also, in some ways, changing. we've become so, we think we're so sophisticated. We think we're really sophisticated. In fact, we're not. And I think we have to, and it, well, in some ways we are, but in other ways, we've let go of some of the very simple, basic values of life. And I think for me and my family, I want to maintain those values. So a word, you know, we talk about shame, we'll talk about judgment, but a word like grace, what a beautiful word. You know, we could spend a podcast just talking about what does the word grace mean? Because the more we talk about those very old fashioned words in a way, truth, authenticity, grace, those things are great weapons against shame and judgment. They really are. But if we, because they've gone out of our armory, we don't have those words in our language. So we're not talking about acceptance and being gracious towards each other and ourselves and our children. And, and, and so it's all about like we had in our local school with Nathan. You know, Nathan kicked off. The next thing I know, there's a WhatsApp group for parents that are going to talk about my son on this special WhatsApp group set up no. just to talk about him. They then decide they're going to do a petition and take it into the school. And Seriously. Behind our backs. You know, this is a school I've been a part of for 18 years. I don't know how you cope with that. It's how really painful. It really broke my heart. It really, really broke my heart. Um, and the reason it breaks my heart, yes, it's for us and our family, but it breaks my heart that these children that were in my son's class never got that opportunity to grow resilience. They never got the chance to look at something different and diverse. They never got a chance to talk about adoption and how it impacts people. They never had those conversations with their parents. These are the same children 10 years from now, we'll all be calling them snowflakes and saying, oh, look at them, they've got no resilience, they've got no backbone. Of course they haven't, because the minute anything that looked a little bit difficult, every parent jumped on it and said, we don't want that kid in our class. And that's an issue. We grew up with kids in our classes that were really naughty sometimes and really dysfunctional. But that was just part of our community. Is you know, And we just embraced those guys and eventually they grew up and you meet them when they're 18 and you go, he turned out really nice, that boy that used to hit my friend. You know, and, and of course...
course, no one. I'm not saying that violence is right in in, in class, and of course, you, your children need to be safe, and I get all of that. But actually, the world is full of diversity. It's full of people with issues and problems. So let's look at that as a, a, a as a child growing up. If my family is all really lovely and neurotypical, and it's all really happy, which is very rare these days, but let's say it is all of that. How am I going to grow resilience? How am I going to live in a real society? Because a real society has lots of different types of people. Also, you know, you hear parents go, I just want my child to be happy. Really? What's happy? I want my children to be whole. And I want my children to know that if they know wholeness, when they're unhappy, hopefully there'll be strategies and a way of talking that they can actually work out how to get out of that place of unhappiness. But if we only have really good experiences and we never have to mix with children who are different because we don't really like them, we don't really want the autistic kid because they blur, we don't really want them in our class. If that's the attitude, it's a loss to the autistic child. But for me, I think it's a greater loss to communities. It's a greater loss to that class. They've missed out on an opportunity. If you've got any of my kids in your class, you are lucky because you're going to learn something and you're going to see how magical their world is. That's what should, I think that's what we need to, one of the things we need to highlight to uh, the, the school sort of sector is that it's, a, it's ultimately, and they should know this as well, but it's ultimately more than anything about learning and growth as opposed to success or performance, isn't it? And you can get learning and growth from, you know, the more exposure to more variety and, and, and uh, diversity. You know, if we're obsessed with building a, a, an environment that will affect positive grades in the way that we measure those grades mm-hmm. then I think that might come to the loss of growth and it's development. It's just so pointless and then, and the, so we all get good grades no, and we all go to university also, and then we yeah, don't all get a job and then we go hang on everything I worked for my entire life and got all those private tutors for and my mum you know made me sit in extra hours doing homework what's it for yeah. if you don't know who you are and you have no backbone and you have no sense of the wonder of difference what what is that gonna mean it doesn't mean anything it's also incredibly boring isn't it that's a boring kind of you know format for life really isn't it it's that's not embracing all the joy that you know the kids can find um the whole the whole system is really just set up i think to not purposefully but to increase the likelihood of autistic people failing in inverted commas what failing mean Mm -hmm. the whole thing is is stacked up against them isn't it that whole culture of performance and valuing being a certain way as opposed to something else and you know you know you speak to actually autistic adults who who are lucky enough to be in a job right um and most of them will tell you that they've not shared that they're autistic with their employers so why is that telling i mean that's all you need to know yeah that's all you need to know yeah, that, that is hard to hear, isn't it? Yeah. When you so what you're again? Future. The messaging continues. So when I go to work, I need to hide. Right. When I go to work, I can't tell anybody who I really am. But unfortunately, it, it is very likely, I think, the case that hiding it in the current climate and culture that we live in is is going to increase the likelihood of them becoming employed or getting into employment. Hundred uh, percent. You know, that's the, that's the reality. Um, there's so much discrimination. Employment discrimination is one of the biggest problems that autistic people face when it comes to stigma you know the whole the statistics tell that story completely i mean the completely disproportionate rates of employment with autistic people compared to so this the general population this week i'm going to um speak at a conference with the secretary of state for work and pensions about this very subject actually talking about the fact that we've got to get past that and we've got to stop also 
making it that all disabled people can only work in their area of disability. So, you know, you're a person in a wheelchair, you work on telly, so you can present the things that are about people in wheelchairs. You know, or like for my husband, David, when he first started in Songs of Praise, I think the first year he did like his items that he was given to present were like, let's do one on slavery. Or let's do one on black church. Let's do one on gospel choirs. You know, so rather than actually don't black people fall in love and don't they get sick or don't they have, don't they go horse riding? Do you know what I mean? Why are we only giving disabled people or autistic people jobs? Oh, you can get a job at Scope as the autism advisor. Why can't you just go and work in the local bank? (laughs) For goodness sake. You know, let's, can we, can we actually, but it's mindset change, isn't it? You know, for some people listening, they might be thinking, that's a really good point. Because actually, they are only given those jobs. Because actually, even in our own communities, we don't think beyond that. And we need to be thinking much bigger. We need for employers to think much bigger. And what's better for mental health than being in an employment that you enjoy and you feel... And that boosts your your self-value, your self-worth, and you feel like you're contributing, and you are... I mean, nothing better. There's almost nothing better than that kind of experience. I recently went health. down to J.P. Morgan, the financial people, um, and did a, a, a speech down there for some of their staff. And 150 people turned up in their lunch hour to find it was just about autism. And they are doing positive positive employment. So they're pulling people in that are autistic. That's what they want. Um, and and that's, that's what we need is people to be in banks and everywhere why can't autistic people be everywhere that they're able to be right, right, you know right. equal opportunities but with equal consideration right you know and that's a different thing because right. neurotypical people might think well why are they getting an hour and a half for lunch and i only get an hour well maybe they need an hour and a half for lunch does it mean they're less good at their job no it doesn't they just need something different to you so equal opportunities with just equal consideration so for this person they might need this for another person they might need that right exactly right I mean, if we weren't living in the kind of society that we do, that in which employment uh, discrimination is so rife, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't need to be thinking in these ways. You know, it would just happen. Yeah. Unfortunately, we need these kinds of proactive solutions to yeah. balance the books, to, to you know, make uh, things more equitable and more fair. Yeah. Right. I mean, We've got a long way to go, and sometimes I do feel very discouraged and think, are we changing anything? You know, you sometimes feel like, gosh, in my own community, we all get it. And that's good. We're all kind of on the same page. And then... Yeah, I think that's such a great question, Carrie. I think that is, that is a crucial question. I mean, it's one thing for us to, to recognise the issues. And I think we do. But how do we affect that kind of change? You know, I mean, how can we ensure that we can translate what we're thinking about and talking about into action, you know what I mean? Yeah. Remembering that we're now three steps ahead and most of people out there are are still like they're at minus 10, do you know what I mean, in terms of acceptance and moving forward? Yeah, and if if these kinds of um, statistics of disproportionate mental health problems, disproportionate employment discrimination and all the rest of it are looking about the same in 10, 15 years, you know, it's going to be a very depressing situation. But, yeah. So let's, let's you know, talk and think about how we can affect the change. I think you know, sometimes it's, think? I think it's um, breaking it down to the very simplest of questions, which is, I, whenever I go and speak anywhere, I always say to people, please ask me dumb questions. Mm-hmm. Because you need to ask your dumb questions. Your dumb questions, I will value them. I might think they're a bit dumb, but I'll value them. So if you want to come up to me and say, does your child make eye contact? I'm giving you permission. I'm not going to get moody with you. 
I'm going to give you really honest answers because until we get past the dumb questions, we can't really get on to the really meaningful conversations. Mm. And I think we, if we, th- people are not even ready for the dumb questions yet. We've got to accept that they're mm. right on the basic and level. Because that's a huge thing. Because once people, that there are genuinely good people that were just a bit awkward about like, saying the yeah. wrong thing. Mm. Because um, we judge. Yeah, right. this is the, yeah. It, it, it's for us as well to you know really pave the way for people to ask. I, I've loved that about my son's starting school. Actually, a lot of parents have been very open and said, Great. "Oh, autistic in what way?" But um, you know, I'd said oh, I didn't, before I knew anything about autism. I'm sure if a parent had have said to me, "My child's autistic," I'm not. Yeah. I'm quite sociable, but I'm not sure how what I would have said. You yeah. know, thinking, "Oh, right. Oh, God, that sounds really hard." Or I haven't actually had any of that yet. I think to begin with, we and, and maybe this is wrong, but but I think this is human nature that when we meet anyone who's new we see we see what we see with our eyes we hear that oh here's Chris he he works in a university and he's Greek so um I don't really know what it's like to work in a university so I'm going to ask some really dumb questions and and I and I actually know lots about Greek culture because we live in a Greek area but if I didn't know that I might think oh so do his family do they all smash plates you know you know oh my gosh you're not going to ask the dumb actually sometimes just allowing people to do that yeah, means that no, they're place. not. No, and I think sometimes we judge people and think, yeah. "Oh, how dare you ask if my child?" How no mind is. Yeah, it makes eye contact. Of course they do, you know. Um, but I think I, I remember a friend of mine going to work at Chicken Shed many, many years ago, and she'd grown up in an era where you weren't meant to look at people who were in wheelchairs. So she'd grown up with her mum going, "Don't look, don't look. It's rude. It's rude. It's rude." So suddenly she'd got to work in chicken shed where there's lots of people in wheelchairs and she said I just had to get over myself she said so the first thing they did was before I went into work they said well come and watch a production she said it was the best thing on earth because I was being positively invited to stare for the first time ever she said and I sat there and I was like look at this oh that guy I see so he's only he's not got any doesn't seem to have much going on in the leg department this one doesn't have an arm this she said I just got over myself and I had a good old stare and then I could just get on with my job and treat everybody equally. Wow. She said, but that was, and I heard that story and I thought that it's so embarrassing, but actually on another level, it's really important. Yes, if you want to have a good old stare in the fact that my husband's black and I'm white, have a good old stare because you've not seen a mixed race couple before. That's fine. All right, you've not seen an autistic child before. Have a good old stare, get over yourself and then let's be friends. Let's get past all of that and let's get onto the stuff that we do have in common because we do have so much in common with people, whether they've got autistic children or not. We're still all parents. Oh, we're still all, yeah. We're all striving towards the same thing, which is just yeah. to raise happy children in one way or another. Because yeah. if we if we could pave the way for the kind of, you know, the dumb questions to be asked, I mean, imagine what that could do. I mean, you're educating people... I don't know, in, in just the loveliest of ways, but then they could maybe talk to other parents of about autism, and, and it just it could be an amazing. And people do find autism fascinating and interesting because it is it is yeah. the most when you really ex, explain kind of you know sensory issues and how it affects the nervous system yeah. and just just people are genuinely interested. Um, I think, and they want to hear about it, but they need to be, they need to feel comfortable asking whatever they want, really, I think. I agree, and in a way, I think more than anything, we need to to give that option to teachers as well. I think they feel like, I'm a teacher, therefore I'm meant to know it all. Yeah. And that's awful. See, I would rather work with 
if you know it that's great if you don't know it and that's equally great as far as I'm concerned because you're just a blank canvas we can go and we can chat and we can I can tell you and you can can tell me from a teaching point of view what that's like because I don't know what that's like Mm -hmm. so we can share best practice the hard ones are those that think they know it and they don't Mm -hmm. those are always the hardest people I don't need to accommodate your child why you know when my child hadn't been in to school for two weeks and then she put her makeup on and went in for the first time in two weeks went into her form and the form teacher said go to the toilet and take that makeup off so she went straight to the toilet and called me and said come and get me I can't cope so how old was this recently? This was about three years ago in secondary school. When she was fourteen. Oh goodness! Yeah. So you can't wear makeup. So well, what? can you? Well, maybe she had too much on. I think you oh, are allowed to wear makeup, but you know that would be if you know anything about autism, you'll know about masking, and sometimes yeah. that was maybe that for her was a really important thing. Does it really yeah. matter? For instance, is it a big deal? Like I've got a child that wears a hat the whole time, day and night. She's twelve years old. If she wears a hat to school, someone's going to send her home. If she goes to work and she wears a hat, it's fine. If I go to work and I wear a hat, no one's going to tell me off. If you go to work and wear a hat at uni, no one's going to say what you're wearing that hat for. It's just fine. But if you're at school, there are it's an institution, isn't it? And there are institutional yeah. rules that they don't want to be flexible. And the irony that our autistic children go to school and it's the most rigid place on earth. It's more rigid than they are. Yeah. I think I think I just think also, you know, coming back to schools then for a moment just in terms of cultural change, one of the other things, because this is a crucial point that you've raised, is their focus on prioritising good mental health for children, for their, for their students. You know, not worrying about the silly little rules that they've got in place because they've had them in place for many, many years and they're not thinking about it, but actually thinking about, well, actually, is it something that, you know, might boost their self-worth or boost their, their self-esteem and, and, and self-efficacy? So therefore, we, let's you know, let's work with that and boost. Let's let's take that as an opportunity, as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, oh, okay, that's an obvious uh, rule break, you know. So I think if 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 the, the culture of education is more about how can we, you know, achieve better mental health, that will that will be a very helpful thing. You know, I there's nothing more important than mental, student mental health. Really. You're a hundred percent right, but I think that comes down to people collaborating together and working on things together and actually when you collaborate around that table you need equal status uh, so you need parents you need practitioners you need the, the the cams and the mental health people you need the teachers you might need the senko you might need the head teacher you might need someone uh that's in the governors you might need a table of about 10 people to work that out so these are the issues is that a parent will be the probably the first person that will call that kind of meeting and the minute you try and call it no one's interested they're like sorry who are you because we come from a mindset of this very heroic leader kind of old-fashioned churchillian style leader which you have the big head teacher and then you have the minions who are the teachers and then you have parents who are like much further down and then the child themselves is somewhere you know below minus and because we've got that kind of setup, rather than, for me, new leadership looks like people are catalysts, they're seers. So a good leader is someone who looks at the team around them and thinks, I can't do this, and they can admit they can't do something, but this person over here can. So I don't know about autism, but um, Mrs Grant over here seems to know an awful lot about it. So let's have her come and talk to us. There's stuff that she doesn't know about education, which we can help her with. And then the child themselves should also be round that table where possible. So... Because we're not set up 
we're set up in a very old institutional fashion of hierarchy right. and that kills collaboration. But that's my, that's exactly fits in with what, I, what I'm saying as well. That, hi, that hierarchy, it's ingrained within our culture just across the board. It's again that need to be It fits the with the, the judgment. Yeah, it fits with the shame. Right. It's exactly what I'm trying to say. Yeah. It fit, it fit, it's yes. trying to reach for the top of the ladder and being the best, you know, mm. because that's what we're socialised to, to think like in our in our society, partly because of the, the the messages that the schools are putting to our children from from when they're you know very young, from the beginning of their lives. You know so that whole cultural change at the educational level, right from the get go, when your children are very young, that that needs to change so that we can move away from this obsession with being the best. Well, it's going to have to change because what you have now is a tsunami and I'm quoting Jeremy Hunt when he he was um, in his former role said, I, I asked him the question, I said, why is it that only 25% of young people actually that are referred to CAMS actually get an appointment? And Jeremy Hunt said, uh, I said, you're going to have a tsunami in a few years. He said, we've got a tsunami now. So... Um, I think that mental health is a big issue and this is a backlash and this is this is a result of the culture that we have set in place the policies that we've set in place make for bad mental health so the only way to counterbalance that is to get people the grown-ups to collaborate and co-produce really good ideas and work so you can say something like can we have a little meeting? We're meeting once a month and we're going to talk about little strategies that we can do amongst our young people. So we know that uh, Johnny in class 6A um, has sensory issues. Uh, everyone wears black trousers, but Johnny would really benefit from wearing black tracksuit bottoms because actually the seams, and if he wears them inside out, it's even better because then the seams don't hurt him. Are we going to sweat that? Or can, are we going to go, no, sorry, Johnny needs to be in starched trousers that are so irritating he can't concentrate and learn. By going to hundreds of meetings where they say, oh, we haven't got the budget for that. How much does it cost to tell Johnny he can wear tracksuit bottoms? Nothing. How much does it cost to get that parent that knows a lot about autism to train all your teachers? Nothing. There are things that cost nothing. These are minor adjustments that make a massive difference. The problem is, I think, one of the other barriers we have to get through is breaking through the sort of cultural, the ingrained cultural uh, positioning of the policymakers themselves. Because policymakers are the people are, that are at the top of the tree in our society, and they're, they're the winners, right? They've, they've experienced that, that system, and they've got to the top, and they're... So it won. works. And it, it's worked for them. They're, ha- they're presumably happy with, with it, because their mental health is presumably pretty good because of the, the success they, they perceive. So therefore, you know, that it's, it's nothing, it's, that they're pursuing policies that they think, that they're, that they're not even perhaps thinking about it, it's, it's subconsciously ingrained within them because of their own socialisation and, and the cultural values that, they, that they've bestowed upon them throughout their life because of the society that they, they've lived in. So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to just take an enormous effort for somehow recognise that you know, we don't have to be slaves to our socialisation and our, you know, our upbringing. You, you know, don't have to be, but when you, but when you spend six hours of every day mm. as a child going through the system, it's really hard not to be influenced by that system. Mm. So how to change that system, I'm not sure. I think yeah. it's really difficult. Oh, yeah. I think it's really, really difficult to be heard. Um, being heard is so important, but I don't think we are heard. I think that teachers are complaining, parents are complaining, but I don't think they're really 
super heard you know we've seen a little bit in our recent budget of money that's going towards mental health will that make a difference it might make a little dent perhaps but when uh you hear people being interviewed that are in these new roles of mental health workers in schools you say okay so you're, oh wow that sounds so exciting wow we've got one of those uh, what does that mean oh it means i'm able to give six hours of my working week to being a mental health worker sorry this is in a secondary school with three thousand students you've got six hours are yeah. you actually kidding me that's not even gonna I mean, you're gonna be like dealing a... with those that are running away from home those that are taking drugs yeah. and maybe they're an anorexic basically you are not going to be dealing with those underlying ones that just again that go under the radar and our autism kids that might just sit there quite nicely in class and inwardly they are thinking i don't want to live right that's like a that's like a plaster for a laceration isn't yeah. it i mean <laughs> yeah you know i mean so I mean, but it sounds good, doesn't it? You know the uh, the idea that they are putting money into mental health. It sounds good for them, you know. Yeah. But really, you know, we it, for for me, it's 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 something that is bigger than even just money. You know, it's I mean, obviously, money is crucial. We live in mm-hmm. that society. Yeah. But for me, it's that shift in cultural change yes. in the way that we think about yeah. what's important in our yes. in our lives. You know, all throughout our lives and. For me, I think it's about moving to us being more self-compassionate and self-loving, being less worried about the negative judgments. But if those judgments do come your way, uh, push back, but also perhaps have a conversation and try to to educate um, if you can. I do wonder. Moving moving from that sort of hierarchical obsession with comparison to a more kind of, you know, equitable, horizontal system in which we're enjoying our diversity and maximising inclusion and then getting our learning and development. I think in a way, society has probably had to move towards a more I culture, a me culture, because I count and I want, I'm worth something. And I think that that's the messaging we've, you know, if you look at our media, that's certainly a lot of the messaging we get. But actually, we mustn't forget the we the wee bit is right. really, really important yeah, yeah, to the eye. Yeah. Right. You, you know, you may be, you are absolutely an individual. You absolutely deserve respect and value. But don't forget that you're part of a community. And it's the community thing. It's when you do the wee bit, it's when you do the joining together, that stuff happens. That's, a, that's the really, that's a great junction. That, when that happens, that's the exciting part of life. Mm. So then everyone is valued, but everyone's got a role. Everyone's doing their bit. Right, I think you're right, we need to move to that. But one of the reasons why we're not, well, I'd say there are two reasons why, why we're not like that, so, as much as perhaps we should be, is because, one, we're, we're brought up with individualistic cultural values. That's, in, at least in the UK we are, that's, that's the way that we're, we're led to think, you know, to prioritise your own personal values and independence as opposed to interdependence with mm. your community and shared values. Uh, and the other thing is the whole... The whole thing about well, if I expose myself to my community, then I'm more vulnerable to the stigma yeah. and the judgment. You know, which is again, which is, goes back to what we're I'm in a catch twenty two, aren't we? We're really? in a catch twenty two. If if we can get rid of those, you know, those judgments, get rid of that public stigma, I think you'd see more uh, more confidence to to more community integration and and more we more we and less I. And when you uh, uh, um, when you're talking about judgment, I'm just thinking about my friends who, and I have a number of friends who are teachers. And they work 12-hour days. They're absolutely exhausted. And they, they are also judged. It's like, how do we create a kinder, right, that's what a more humane yeah, yeah. society? It right. really is about our humanity. It's about it's how so we simple. treat... Yes, it does. But the rat race gets us all kind of... Rah, against one another. And you don't get me. And 
uh, I, 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 that's not helpful. We've we got meant, to... We mentioned that in episode one, in the first episode, about the fact that teacher teacher mental health is also vulnerable. Yeah. And that, and that, you know, everyone has mental health. You know, it isn't just our kids mm. or us. Sure. It's also the teachers and the policy makers and everyone. So, that's why when someone does something good, I always try to remark on it. I'll send, you know, a little card to whoever's done something nice for my child to go, thank you so much. It like the world. Yeah. But isn't that one of the most wonderful things about being an autism parent? The smallest things, you can, you yeah. can glean such happiness from that. So, yeah, I mean, talking about just, I don't know, taking kids out of that socialised hierarchy and that structure. If, if, if we could all be, like you were saying, teach everyone to not sweat the small stuff. If somebody yeah. wants to wear a hat 24-7, I love that change that just in, in friends who are autism parents where you just you don't judge anyone I, would, I, I yeah. just I wouldn't even know how to judge a fellow parent now because I'm just that like, anything goes we're all on the same path yeah. we're all just getting on with it who cares about the small stuff it doesn't yeah. really matter yeah if, if we could all just be like that I, I don't know how we'd ever do that <laughs> influence everyone well, I think you make your own communities things. don't you but the 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 problem comes is that those can become ghettoized and I whilst I love my autism community I want my autism community to be part of society I want them to have the right to take their place amongst everybody else so at some stage they're going to have to it's yeah. sad but true even Can't with live. our ideals yeah. there is some conforming to be done at some stage yeah. some part of life so yeah, but if I could all just slot together a bit more neatly and, or actually just be more flexible um, and less judgmental, then everyone would just be so much happier. Um, yeah, I think, that's great. I think it's great. I think we're talking about the, the, the key issues here, aren't we? I mean, some, some of the key issues, sort of social, cultural issues. But thinking about just sort of practical, concrete advice, you know, obviously there are so many autistic kids and children and adults and older autistic adults across across the, the the board that are suffering from terrible mental health right now as we speak you know they're just feeling awful don't think they can take any more you know and really struggling with with all with all of it for those because of course we may have those people those kinds of people listening yeah sure what what sort of practical concrete advice would you give those people that are just struggling really just to get through the day and, and just feeling so low and, and down and lonely and, and, and just experiencing such terrible mental yeah. health. I think that for younger, for those who are, are, are parents of, of young children, I think one of the things that, I this is just my own thing, but that I feel I've learned is to teach my children to have a language that is quite a therapeutic language so I've had no counselling training but I will encourage my children to talk about how they feel and 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 find more words because sometimes with autistic kids they'll just go fine I'm fine like uh yeah but I've just seen the suicide note so you're clearly not fine uh so it's 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 actually finding that language that they they understand, oh, this is the language of self-help. This is, if I was talking to a professional, now I'm not talking to my mum now, now I'm 18, I'm somewhere else, and then a professional said, what's happening? Oh, that's that language that we go into when I want to talk about my inner feelings. I think we need to encourage that in our children, even if it takes, a, it's going to take a lot longer if they're autistic. Um, 
So I think that language, I, I noticed a couple of things recently. One was my son, who's adopted. We got two new dogs. And I, I sometimes, like all parents, you know when you just think nothing's going in, they're not listening, why is there not enough change? If I had a neurotypical child, they'd be like advancing. You know, you've got all that pressure coming on you. And, um, and I heard my son talking to the dogs and he said, do you know what, you dogs, you belong in this family you are equal to everybody else in this family and nobody can take that away. And I was like, oh my gosh, he's giving them the adoption talk. You know, he's just like, he's got that language. And then just last night, my one of my daughters handed me uh, the phone and she said, I'm coming off Instagram. Uh, can you just see what I've posted? I'm coming off Instagram. And I, I, I said, she said, just for a little while. And I read the post it was amazing, actually. Uh, but she's because she said I, you know, I'm really not liking it that I put out. What did she say? I put out a, a little storm and I get a tsunami back. So I don't really like that because it's getting me into arguments. So she comes off it and then she said, "Mum, I'm coming off it because it's not good for my mental health." I thought, "Oh my gosh, I love the way," and I'm yeah. so proud of her. I said, "You know," and she was hurting. She was actually hurting as she was saying it, but the fact that she had the language to explain and describe that hurt is really important so giving our children a language of of communicating they are to communicate our mental health needs so that's for, for what we can be doing for our young as a strategy i think for those of us who are older who, who struggle with our mental health i think and i know this is always said but i do think it's about reaching out it is it has to be about finding you don't need a hundred people to speak to you just need one person who will listen and it's finding that one dedicated person who, you know, a small handful of people, if you can find one or two, because maybe it's too much for one person to take on board our entire mental health. But um, being able to share, finding that, that one person. And if you can't find that amongst friends, then actually going to your GP. Um, I'm all for a thing they call social prescribing. So rather than my doctor prescribing tablets for depression, actually... Um, prescribing an art therapy course or um, a drama club or a choir you know actually things where we can join in with others you know it, joining a choir for instance when you sing together with other people all your heart rates join up so that you've all got the same heart rate whilst you sing you know that that's a lovely bit of science and oxytocin is released when you sing so lots of good the happy drugs get released you are in a community if you're autistic, you don't have to speak because you're just singing. So there's no pressure to have mm. lots of communication. But for some people, you know, they may be thinking, oh, I couldn't even do that. I can't. How do I get out of the house? And I, I think it's then it is about picking up the phone to your GP and, and asking for help. And I'd like to think <laughs> that that help is there. And, and I guess if it's not, then the charitable sector in this country is probably better than uh, what we'd find from our GPs, unfortunately, in terms of mental health is it would be the Samaritans or some of those groups. Uh, that people that that can hear really hear there's a difference between just listening but really hearing what you're saying so that you're heard I think being heard is again it's one of those really simple things like grace it's like it's such a simple thing but when you're heard you feel good mm -hmm. absolutely yeah. Yeah. you feel like that person has just heard me I can I know they've heard me and I now feel so much better yeah. Can I just ask you really quickly about the mm. music, um, music therapy? Because I, I just went to a lecture recently um, with an autistic um, guy who was wonderful, and he has made his whole world about um, 
helping autistic kids through music and with some amazing results. Great. So, um, yeah, what, what would you, how would you um, suggest that parents start off with if, if they have that glimmer of thinking, do you know what, I think music might actually help them to keep calm, to focus, mm. might give them that outlet. How would you start as a parent giving them into That's a really good question. I think we have to remember that for autistic people and and I actually agree with their logic, if I'm honest. Words are like, why Why are words put up with this big number one? It's about the hierarchy thing again. Words are number one. You know, let's... Because, yeah. Yeah. Like, what why is this word thing? Like, okay, so if we're not using words, then there are many, many other ways to communicate. Words are just superfluous, really. When you think about all these other the ways of communicating, once you start to ask yourself that question... What other ways do I communicate with my child? And what other ways do I communicate with my partner or family or friends? Or, You know, we communicate in lots of different ways other than words. So music is one thing. Dance is another. Acting is another. Cooking is another. Gardening is. Sport is. There's so many creative ways of communicating. So I think it's about finding your child's thing. There's a lovely um, scripture in the Bible, actually, that says teach your child in the way they should go and they won't depart from from it and I think that to me is my challenge as a parent is what is the way that this child is going who is this child I want to teach them to be more themselves so if music is their thing there are lots of music clubs and things like that around you can easily easily do that Um, but who are they because this little one loves fishing I know nothing about fishing, but when they're fishing, there is something magical that happens to them. They're communicating. There's something, they're trying to talk to me through this. So it's finding whatever that thing is for your child. And then that becomes their special interest. And we all know that the special interest is the thing that soothes them and can lower anxiety. So finding those special interests and and seeing them as communication. That way, we're not also set up with, you know, I'm really against this kind of stuff where they go, you know, if you've got Jaffa cakes in front of us here, if you are able to say, I'm fine today, thank you, we'll give you a Jaffa cake. Oh, great, you know, so you've all learned to say, I'm fine, thank you. So a whole host of autistic kids are now going, I'm fine, thank you. And the first thing they do is go out on the street and someone says, do you like the weather? And they go, oh my gosh, I don't know what to say because I've only been taught I'm fine, thank you. We've got to forget words sometimes and Mm -hmm. just look at lots of other areas, ways that we communicate, things that we do that that demonstrate how we feel and think and and, and our position on the world. So yeah, music is one. And then lots lots and lots of music clubs. I know that, I can say that confidently all over the country. You'll find music clubs, choirs, little groups. I think it would be a fantastic way it's just a shame that this isn't all in school isn't it yeah well we've got the STEM STEAM thing we're back to the you know let's get rid of the A out so STEM is science technology English maths and a lot of us are arguing please can we put the A in there which is the arts Mm -hmm. because actually if I'm a scientist and I I haven't thought outside the box then I'm not going to I'm not going to be a great scientist am I I've got to have the I've got to have the arts in there to become super good at at that and equally if I'm an entrepreneur who's the entrepreneur that's going to succeed it's the entrepreneur who's done the arts because they'll have a creative brain and think outside the box so the out of the box thinking this is really the attack on our society is let's not let anyone think outside the box let's put you all in a nice neat box and if you don't fit then you don't belong and you're you're not part of us and uh, let's go against that let's smash the box up let's never ever put it back there again and let's all live outside the box and see what happens i'm sure it'll be much more fun absolutely absolutely yeah let's do that right now right now (laughs) 
Okay, thanks. That's really interesting. I can just talk to you all day yeah, you long. Can yeah, you've got, you're going and to the you House guys. of Commons. <laughs> I know, aren't you? Yeah, I'm off to the House of Commons this afternoon for the launch of Ask, Listen, Do, which is the NHS campaign to get every member of the NHS staff autism trained. So it's a really big day for us autism families. Imagine if that could happen. Yeah, imagine if you take your child into A&E and there's a mental health worker there that can talk to your child and they understand autism. And they're not stuck in, like my child was recently, because they just turned 16, so no longer in the friendly kids bit. You're now with 100 adults who are all laying on the floor. There's no seat for you and you're crying and oh yeah and you have to wait there for an hour and a half yeah well, i hope it goes well thank you yes thank you, you. Me too. um okay i think that is it uh just a big 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 thank you uh, from us big thank you for having me thank you it's been really great really fascinating. and just just remember not everything i say is right you know i'm just it's my opinion so I know sometimes, yeah, but I know sometimes you're just like, what's she saying? No, I don't agree with that. And there's lots of different opinions, and I'm up for being trained and talked to and educated as well. So you know, it's not a one-way conversation. So if this is going out on Facebook or wherever, and you want to make right comments, keep them nice, keep them kind, because I'm up for learning. I don't need telling off, but I'm really willing to learn. Well, so, we're still learning, though, aren't we? Yeah, we are. A hundred percent. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. All right. see you. Thank, Thank you. you. We hope you enjoyed the Autism Podcast Episode 2. If you would like to support the charity, you can do so by going to our London Autism Group Charity Facebook page and donating by pressing the blue donate button, or you can set up your own fundraiser there. You can also PayPal us at London Autism Group Charity at gmail.com. That's London Autism Group Charity at gmail.com. You can also go to smile.amazon.co.uk or .com and select the London Autism Group Charity as your charity of choice and continue with your shopping. We're also now on Give As You Live, which is another free way to raise money in the UK for our charity. Just select the London Autism Group Charity as the charity that you wish to support and proceed with your shopping via that site. Remember, you can find the Autism Podcast on our Facebook site and also our website, the address of which is theautismpodcast.podbean.com. That's theautismpodcast.podbean.com. You can also find us on apps such as Spotify, Tuned In, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and of course iTunes. Our episodes are also posted on our social media channels, including our YouTube site, Facebook page, and Twitter, the handle of which is LAG Charity. Thank you very much, and we will see you on the next one.